0: Thank you. That was beautiful. Wasn't that a beautiful song? Um, his eyes on the sparrow and he watches over. Sorry. Do I just? Ah, there we go. Could you just bow your head with me one more time? Dear new Father, thank you that you care for us, that you care for the little birds and the animals and the fish and everything in creation. And that, Father, you care for us. You know the troubles we've been through this week. You know what's on our hearts and minds. And, Father, I pray that this time we will be convicted that not only do you care, but that you're powerful enough to heal us from any sickness, to help us through any distress and trouble, and to sustain us through whatever challenge we're facing. And that, Father, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you're with us, Lord. Father, I want to pray for all those who are sick and absent or traveling this weekend, that you be with them. Um, and, Father, that you would bless them in a special way. I pray in your son's name. Amen. I apologize. I do have a cold. So if I don't come and hug you, that's why. Um, I've been trying to keep a little healthy distance. Um, so I'm just warning you in advance not to, not to come near me. But um, hopefully you will still you can still hear the words through my scratchy voice because um, I know that God has a message for us today. In recent weeks, there's been a lot of controversy if you've been reading the news, about the U.S. immigration and customs enforcement policies um, resulting in the separation of, of children from their parents. And so there's been a lot of controversy and, um, and you know, disputes and, and things happening in the U.S. But have you seen this picture of a pregnant woman being thrown over a border wall so that she won't have her baby on U.S. soil? Now I see horrified faces, which... <laughs> And the reason why I'm smiling is not because I'm a horrible person, but because this is fake news. This picture and the headline was published by The Onion, which is a satirical website, which takes you know political and, and things that are happening, and they, they take it to the extreme just to make a point. And so they're making a point, but this is not a real picture. This didn't actually happen. We live in a time where fake news is a real thing. With the ease of photoshopping and sharing online, it's hard to know what's an accurate report or what's just been shared on social media enough that you 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 know, you don't read carefully. You just see the headline in the photo and the caption and you think, this is real. But it's not. There's so much fake news. If ever there was a time to be discerning between truth and fiction, that time is now. And so today as we look at the Bible, we're doing a series today and next Saturday on reasons to believe. And today we're looking at the question, is the Bible reliable, and how do we know? How do we know? Is the Bible a transcript of true revelation from God, or is it just something that was fabricated by men to manipulate the masses? Is it the whole truth and nothing but the truth, or is it a book that has some truth? Why are there so many interpretations of the Bible? If you tried to Google these questions, you're going to get all kinds of answers. I hope you realized by now that the internet does not always have the right information. (laughs) So I want to challenge you today to always fact check. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you some resources um, of books and, and, and online resources that have been researched, that have facts backing them up. And today, I cannot answer all the questions, but I'm going to give you five reasons you can trust that the Bible is the revelation of God. Now, after I do this today's sermon and Roy does part two next week, we're not going to end there. Um, There's an off-site series that's going to continue called Live with Purpose. Now, this is going to be preached by Pastor Simon um, Gigliotti, who was here last weekend preaching. He is the Assistant Youth Director for the Victorian Conference, and he's fantastic. And he's going to be presenting six topics over two weekends. So it's the 13th and and um, that weekend and the 21st weekend, and I'll show you the times um, more specifically. So on 13th, which is a Friday at 7 p.m., he's going to be covering the topic of Live With Purpose. This is a great series to bring your friends and colleagues who are open and um, if you invite them, they might be open. You never know. Um, sometimes people are searching and you don't realize what's going in their hearts. Just invite them. Put it on. This is an event on our Facebook and it's on my Facebook, so just share it. You don't have to even ask one specific person. Just share it on your Facebook, see what happens. You never know. Um, but... You know, we do encourage you to come because if your friend does decide to come, if you come, they're, they're a lot more likely to come as well. And so 7 o'clock is live with purpose, right? It's going to be exploring what is life about. And you know what? There is not a single person on the planet who doesn't at one point in their life wonder, is this it? Is this all there is to life? It doesn't matter if you're George Clooney or you know, the um, wealthiest person in the world. It it doesn't matter. Everyone at some point wonders, is this it? They've got everything they possibly could want, and yet there's something missing, right? And so that's the question we're going to be exploring on the 13th of July. And then on the 14th of July, which is a Saturday, there's going to be two series back-to-back in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock, Who Was Jesus?, um, and this will be looking at the historical information as well as who he claimed to be, followed by 3.50 p.m., the Bible, Fact or Fiction. So you'll get hopefully more than what I give you today. Um, and then on the 20th of July, which is the following Friday, the topic of God and suffering. One of the reasons why people say they don't believe in a God is because there's so much suffering in the world. So how can there be a God? That's the topic that that uh, Simon will be exploring on the 20th. And then on the 21st, which is, again, that Saturday afternoon, there's going to be two topics, forgiveness and freedom, followed by the power of community. Why do we need to have a church at all? Why can't we just believe in God and worship by ourselves? Okay? So please invite your family and friends. Please register yourselves. Um, it's important that you register because um, the, rent, the venue is for 200 people. But if for some reason we have more than that registered, then... We'll have to do a last-minute change, but it gives us information. Plus, I'm in charge of the food, and if I don't have enough, I'll be very sad. It'll, it'll really hurt my soul. So please register so I can feel good that there's enough food for everyone. Um, it's, I think it's another thing. I have to feed everybody. Um, so yes, so please keep this in mind. Ultimately, we cannot prove the existence of God. Just as I cannot prove that Roy loves me. I believe he does, based on his actions in the past and present. He asked me to marry him. That's a a pretty good sign that he loves me. He has sacrificed some of his own career opportunities to help advance mine. Yesterday, the child care center was closed for professional development. And, um, you know, I have to preach today, and I had so much going on. So then Roy volunteered to take the kids to the play center in the morning so that I could work work on what I needed to do. When he's eating something and I'm eyeing it, he lets me have a bite. And if that's not love, I don't know what is. I believe he loves me based on his declarations. He tells me that he loves me quite regularly, which I appreciate. I believe also based on the witnesses who can testify that he loves me. You know how Roy got ordained a few weeks ago and I sent the ordination service YouTube video to a friend who couldn't be there in person. And she my friend Celia, those of you who know her, and she wrote me back and she said, my favorite part of the whole service was when Roy choked up saying how much you, know, you mean to him. And I was like, yeah, that's my favorite part too. <laughs> so, you know, there's always evidence that Roy loves me, but if I were to go to a complete stranger who doesn't know either of us and say, my husband loves me, they're going to be like, oh yeah? And even if I gave them all the reasons I just gave you, if they don't wanna believe, they won't. So in the same way, I can give you reason after reason for the reliability of the Bible, but if you are close to it, or if, you, if you're if you not open to research and further study and, and exploration, then nothing else can can change um, that except the Holy Spirit working in your heart. So I just wanna put it out there that we're not trying to prove the reliability of the Bible. We're giving you reasonable um, and, and hopefully very convincing arguments for why you can then take that leap of faith and believe that the bible is the word of god so a little bit of background about the bible the bible is not just another is just not sorry the bible is not just one book it's actually 66 books that are bound together in two parts you might have heard of it the old testament and the new testament the old testament consists of 39 books written by 30 individuals who lived between 1400 to 400 bc mainly in the Hebrew language, sometimes in Aramaic. Um, And then the New Testament consists of 27 books written by 10 authors from about 40 to 95 AD um, in Koine Greek and Aramaic. So the Old Testament was written before the time of Jesus, and the New Testament was written after the time of Jesus. And that's why in history you have BC before Christ, AD after death. (laughs) Now, these authors were from all walks of life, shepherds, farmers, tent makers, doctors, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and kings, spanning about 1,500 different years and different cultures and nations. But the theme and the content are so consistent, and they tell a grand narrative of God's plan of redemption. For example, there are 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament about written by different people living in different times and places about Jesus, and they are all fulfilled. Now, mathematicians have done some calculations to see what are the odds of one person fulfilling all 300 prophecies. And this is what um, one mathematician um, came up with. He said, To understand what the probability looks like, first, blanket the entire earth landmass with little coins, like silver dollars or for us it would be like the gold coins, and put them 120 feet high. I don't know what that is, meters. You can do the math. So a lot. Second, specially mark one of those coins and randomly bury it. Third, ask a person to travel the earth and select it while blindfolded. And that's kind of what the chances are, and you can see the actual mathematical, numerical chances. But that's the kind of the uh, illustration to to show you what the chances are. So, what were some of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? I'm not going to go over all of them. Uh, you can always come back to this YouTube video and, and freeze frame this and, and look at it more in detail. But I'll just mention um, a few. For example. It says that um, in the, the fourth column, or uh, fourth row, the Messiah will be anointed and begin his ministry 483 years after the restoration of Israel as a nation after the exile. So, in other words, in the Old Testament prophecies in the book of Daniel, it actually told you um, this after the uh, <coughs> Jerusalem building is restored because it was destroyed. It said 483 years later, Jesus. Would be anointed, and indeed, it happened exactly as so. Um, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized and began his public ministry in AD 27, which was exactly 483 years after the temple was rebuilt. Okay, so that's just one example out of the many to to show you what was fulfilled. So, one reason to believe in the reliability of the Bible is the internal consistency of the content the fulfillment of prophecy despite the fact that the books were written hundreds of years apart over three different continents. So something was prophesied hundreds of years before and then it was fulfilled exactly so. So that's the first reason, consistency through history. Here's the second one. The Bible is full of references to people, places, and things. And so many, right, that historians and critics of the Bible say, that some of the things that are mentioned in the Bible are nowhere else in other writings in ancient times. And so they believe it must be made up. But archeology span continuously finds evidence of those people, places, and things that are in the Bible but nowhere else, um, that have been nowhere else in kind of secular history. For example, skeptics doubted whether King David and King Solomon, who are very well-known kings in the Israelite history, Skeptics doubted whether they really existed because, up until a long time, there was no evidence of their names in any of the um, uh, ancient writings or archaeological findings. But then in 1993, they discovered an inscription for the first time that said the house of Israel and the house of David. And it was dated to 900 to 850 BC, which is the time when they were ruling. Also, um, they discovered the Mesha steel, which is dated to 846 B.C., that records the revolt of Mesha, the king of Moab, against Israel, and mentions specifically Omri, who was the king of Israel at that time. Um, and that story of that revolt with Mesha and Omri is mentioned in great detail in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. It also mentions this Mesha steel, David, and it talks about Yahweh, which is the name of God that the Israelites called upon, which we call, you know, Jesus, Yahweh, and there's other names of God. And so this was a huge finding. And so then those who were saying, oh, David didn't exist, or, you know, Omri oh, didn't exist, all of a sudden had nothing to say. Also, a clay tablet has been found. Um, that is the receipt for payment made by Nebo Sarsikim, an official of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why is that important? Well, this is a very, very minor character mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39, verse three. And it just mentions him just very quickly. And this is what um, a British museum expert, Dr. Irving Finkel said about this finding. He said, this is a fantastic discovery, a world-class find. If Nebo Sarsikim existed, Which other lesser figures in the Old Testament existed? A throwaway detail in the Old Testament turns out to be accurate and true. I think that that means that the whole of the narrative of Jeremiah takes on a new kind of power. Okay, So you have these very minute details that it turns out to be historically accurate. Places and not just people have also been confirmed by archaeology. In the book of John, um, there's a story about how Jesus heals a man by the pool of Bethesda. And in the story, it says that the pool, um, that there were five porticos next to the sheep's gate. And for the longest time, scholars didn't believe that the pool existed because there were no five porticos, the sheep's gate. They said, oh, this is not true. This is inaccurate. See, the Bible is, is not a revelation from God. But then they discovered um, the sheep's gate, 40 feet below ground of where they were looking, complete with five porticos and with shrines dedicated to healing. So in the story, there's they talk about how the pool, they believe that if you jumped in, you would get healed. So there's all this evidence pointing to the fact that this was where the pool of Bethesda was. Also, the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed a blind man, was discovered in 2005. So, there's so much more, but that's all I've brought for you today. Archaeology cannot, again, prove that the Bible is God's written word, but it substantiates the Bible's historical accuracy and gives us, like I said, that reason to believe. If those facts are true, then can the whole thing be true? Another reason to believe in the reliability of the Bible is just how faithfully the Bible has been transmitted um, from generations. Here's what I mean. Today we take communication for granted because it's so easy for us um, through online or print to share information. However, the writers in the ancient times did, didn't get to just pick up a piece of paper and write. Right? In the Old Testament times, the Jewish scribes or anyone else who wanted to to write anything would have to take an animal, usually a sheep, carefully skin the you know animal and carefully roll it out and preserve it and do it all they had to do to make it into a scroll. Usually one sheep was uh, produced a one meter long scroll. And then, of course, you have to find somebody who is educated enough to be able to write, which is very rare in those days. And then that person would have to painstakingly copy every stroke. And if they make a mistake they have to start all over again. There's no delete button. There's no white out, right? So this was a very difficult, expensive, tedious process. And so the skeptics of the Old Testament questioned how reliable the Bible we have today is compared to what was originally written. They're saying, okay, well, maybe the Bible, what you have, you know, has parts of it. But they, I bet that when they first wrote it, it was very different. And over time, there's been errors in clerical copying and You know, scribes would have been tired, their hands cramped. You know, things along the way, there's been translations, it's been spread across different regions. So they say there's no way that what we have today, the Bible we have today, the Old Testament, is the same as what the original authors intended. Well, it's a good point, except this skepticism was soundly silenced by a crucial discovery in 1946. Now, here's an example, by the way, of the Hebrew writing. I wanted to show you this because it's so easy to make a mistake. When I took Hebrew at the seminary, oh, it was so painful because if you get one, you know, you sneeze, you and ah, oh, like you've messed up the whole sentence, you know? Like it's it's a very, very meticulous um, language. And so you can imagine how they might have made a mistake, right? But in 1946, some boys were throwing rocks in caves, as boys do, and as they were throwing the rocks, probably seeing who could throw the farthest, get it in the holes, all of a sudden they threw the rock and they heard something crack. You know that distinct sound that mother's fear? They heard that crack. And so then they wondered what's inside. So as boys do, then they went inside to explore. And they found these jars, which of course they told the their grown ups and when the people came in and realized what they were, scholars came in. And what was inside was, inside these, these caves were pots with hundreds of manuscripts dating back as far as 200 BC. In fact, they excavated from 1946 to 1956 um, 11 caves that had more than 870 separate scrolls. In fact, just last year, in February of 2017, Hebrew University Archaeology announced the discovery of a 12th cave. But sadly, they found broken jars and pickaxes showing that it was looted in the 1950s. And so we'll never know what was in there. But from the 11 caves that were found in the 1950s, Every book of the Old Testament have been discovered except for the book of Esther. Maybe the book of Esther was in the 12th cave. Um, And they found the entire Old Testament except for that book. 19 whole, and there are multiple copies of multiple books. So for example, the book of Isaiah had 19 copies entire. The book of Deuteronomy had in whole 25 copies beginning to end. The book of Psalms, 30 copies. Uh, These scrolls, seemed to be the library of a Jewish sect that lived from about 200 BC to 68 AD. And when scholars then took these scrolls and compared it word by word to what we have today, they were astounded, okay? 200 BC, 2000s, right? I mean, okay, well, they would have discovered 1956. But that's, that's thousands of years. That's a long time for people copying by hand to copy exactly. But guess what? Except for like, Uh, the like very, very, very minor differences, it was almost exactly the same. That is an incredible miracle in and of itself, and I believe that God had a hand in making sure that his word was preserved. It's a miracle. Okay, well, what about the New Testament? That's the Old Testament. Actually, the New Testament documents provide even a greater evidence of their reliability. How do we know that? The New Testament books were written on papyrus between 50 to 95 AD. I said 40 earlier, but 50 is a more likely scenario. Some people argue for earlier. But um, and because of the early days, so let's go with 50 to 95 AD, because these stories in the New Testament are about Jesus who lived, you know, he he died um, you know around 31 AD and so people who had um, who, who saw these writings by the disciples were people, some of the people were alive during the events that these writings are describing. In other words, if someone comes along to you and says, hey, you know, nine eleven, it never happened, okay? You would turn to them and say, no, it did happen because... I was alive when the news came on and you know, all that thing happened. Right? You can refute something because it happened in your lifetime. Does that make sense? Um, and so, or if someone said to you, hey, I'm um, trying to think of a different example, of something made up completely, if they said, hey, you know, actually, um, okay, I can't think right now. I'm sorry. I'm too tired. But you get the idea that if you are alive during that time period, you can refute someone's claims because it was happening in your lifetime. So the fact that these New Testament writings um, about Jesus were written during a, during you know a time period when people were still alive um, who could refute those claims, it really gives us compelling evidence that these were not fiction. In fact, uh, scholars of mythology say that myth, myths are not written during the lifetime of the witnesses, but over hundreds of years. Right? Myths develop after, you know, you say, a long, long time ago, once upon a time. That's how myths begin. It's not, hey, 20 years ago, right? And so you, when you read the texts in the New Testament, that's indeed what the disciples say. So this is Peter, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, writing. In Second Peter he says, we didn't repeat crafty myths when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary, we witnessed his majesty with our own eyes. He received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the magnificent glory saying, this is my dearly loved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. In addition, we have a most reliable prophetic word, and you would do well to pay attention to it, just as you would to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Most important, you must know that no prophecy of Scripture presents the prophet's own understanding of things because no prophecy ever came by human will. Instead, men and women were led by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. And here's John, another disciple of Jesus, my favorite. And he said, We announce to you what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have seen and our hands have handled about the word of life. The life was revealed, and we have seen, and we testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also announce it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, We're writing these things so that our joy can be complete. You see, they they repeatedly said, this is what we heard. This is what we saw. So when you're reading the gospel stories, it says, then Jesus did this. Then Jesus said this. Because they're telling you what they personally experienced. Have you heard of Julius Caesar? We've all, I'm sure, heard of Julius Caesar. And we accept the fact that he was a historic figure, that he was a political, military you know, genius who was assassinated by Brutus, right? We know that storm you accepted. Even though, where do we get, how do we know about Julius Caesar? How do we know he really existed? And we know about Julius Caesar based on something that he wrote. Uh, if you go down to one, two, three, four, five, the fifth line, here we go. And um, the, the, the events that he's describing are from 100 to 44 B.C., okay? So, so supposedly it was written at that time. But the earliest copies that we have of that, that copy of these writings is 900 A.D. So that's almost a 1,000 years from when he supposedly wrote it and when we actually have a copy of it. And how many copies do we have in 10. And do we all accept Julius Caesar? Are we taught about Julius Caesar in, 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 in our schools? You bet. Let's look at another one. Have you ever heard of Plato? You've heard of Plato and Socrates. Well, his dialogue uh, supposedly occurred around 427 to 347 BC. That's when he was alive, etc. Earliest copies? AD 900. That's 1,300 years between the events and when we have a copy of it. How many copies? Seven. Okay. Uh, you see the trends here, right? What about the history of Rome? What about Pliny? What about Herodotus, so Herodotus and Homer, Iliad? Have you, have you read that in high school? I remember reading really the Iliad. Events, 400 year time gap. This is the most we have of secular, um, Homer, age 643. Now let's jump down to the New Testament. New Testament events happened between five BC when Jesus was born to about 95 AD when John the Revelator had his visions. Which means that that the um, some of the writings were actually even before he died. Okay, so you're looking at between um, and the earliest copies that we have are actually from AD 80 to 125, 83-25 with the complete New Testament, and so that's a gap of 25 to 50 years for some of the writings, and 225 for the whole thing. And how many copies do we have? 24. Thousand manuscripts and 5,360 complete ones. Okay? That's a lot. That's a lot of copies. And so you see how we are accepting one thing as reliable enough, but then we reject the Bible as not reliable enough, but that's actually a very illogical thing to do. Because not only were the New Testament writings accepted by people of their time period as reliable, but it wasn't just a matter of, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll accept that. No, people are willing to die for it. It's one thing for someone to say, yep, um, I believe that nine eleven happened. I believe that the, the, the towers came down. It's another thing to, to, to be, you know, to have a gun to your head and say, and still be willing to say, yes, I believe it's true. Even if you kill me, I will not deny the fact that it happened. Okay, that That's us. Real strong conviction. But that's exactly what these early Christians did. Not only did Christianity spread, it spread during the time when they were persecuted if they believed in it. So it's not just a few crazy people who wrote the books, but thousands of people who converted from their Jewish or pagan faith to the Christian faith. They were willing to be executed publicly in arenas by gladiators, lions, and fire because they could not deny the truth of what they have experienced. There was nothing attractive about becoming a Christian. You were going to be killed for it except the incredible pull of truth and the conviction that Jesus was alive. And Christianity became a wildfire. They could not stop it. It wasn't popular but it spread because people knew this is true i've experienced it i know that is a pretty strong reason to believe in the reliability of the bible that the people in the time where they could have denied the the stories because it happened in their lifetime instead of denying said yep saw it believe it experienced it and told people in such a convincing way that they also were willing, even though, you know, as time passed, they hadn't witnessed it themselves, but they were willing to go on the testimony of someone else. Here's the fourth reason to believe in the reliability of the Bible. There are secular, ancient literature written around the time of the New Testament that confirm the historicity of of some of the New Testament writings. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but I'll just give you a few examples. Tacitus, uh, who's a, you know, if you remember from the previous table, was one of the historians. He describes how Christ was crucified by Pilate and how the Christians mer- multiplied and were persecuted by Nero, who hated them and tried to kill them all the time. Um, Pliny the Younger was someone who described Christians worshipping and how they worshipped. And the Lucian of Samosata, he mocked the Christians for their devotion. And Josephus wrote about Jesus and the history of the Jews in 93 A.D. So you can actually go and look at all their historical, secular writings. And so you can, you know, you might deny Jesus as Savior, but you cannot deny that Jesus was a historic figure and that the disciples took his story and that Christianity flourished in a time when really everything was against them. The last reason I want to share today is that we can believe in the reliability of the Bible because it has the power to transform lives, culture, and history in significant ways. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. And time and time again, the Bible has changed criminals into conscientious citizens, apathetic atheists into impassioned apologists, and skeptics into missionaries. And he's also shaped the the life purpose of millions of lives, including mine. Uh, I think about a month ago, I preached a sermon called Extraordinary Life. And if you missed it, go back and watch it on YouTube because it tells the story of the most amazing couple I met who taught me what Christianity is really about. And... When I was there in France in 2004, you know, spending time with this couple on the weekends, during the week I was actually working. I was um, I had an internship at a museum in Aix-en-Provence. But I love the French and their work ethic because they worked from 10 to 12, and then they would have a two hour lunch break, and then we would work from two to five. That's it. And I was there on my own, and in 2004, I didn't have a cell phone, I didn't have internet access, um, so it was just me, alone in, this, in, in the whole area, and had a lot of time on my hands, right? A lot of time on my hands. So, you know, sometimes I would go for walks, and I would go to the museums, or I would explore the area. But what I did every day for four hours um, a day was I would read my Bible. It was the one English book that I had. It was a tie to home. It was. Something that gave me comfort. So four hours a day, it, it just—I loved it. I just read the Bible, and it was the most I've read in, in the, that concentrated time. I was there for ten weeks, every day for four hours a day. And at the end of that summer, you know, not only did I have this incredible experience with that couple, but something incredible happened in my heart. You see, um, for for three years previous to that moment, I had this very messy, on again, off again relationship um, with a guy. My first—it was my first relationship, and so it was my first love. And you know, after after we broke up, like it was very, very difficult for me um, to have peace in my heart again. And I realized at the end of that summer one day, it suddenly occurred to me: well, I haven't—I haven't thought about John in months. And I realized that, you know, all, all the anxiety and the insecurities that I had battled my whole life. Because believe it or not, when I was a little girl, even saying, you know, when the teacher calls out your name for a roll call, even saying present or here was so difficult. I, w- I was so afraid of public speaking that just saying present for a roll call, I would just blush from head to toe, sweat, and just, like, it was a ter- terrible. Um, and so I was extremely insecure and really shy um, growing up. And so... That summer, after my incredible experience of reading the Bible and, and, and having that um, encounter with God, I realized at the end of the summer that I felt, for the first time in my life, peace. Peace. Freedom from fear. Freedom from, you know, emotions that I didn't want to have. Just complete peace and complete surrender to who God wanted me to be and what God was calling me to be. And so I want to tell you that if you really want to know if the Bible is reliable, if you really want to know, is the, God, is the Bible divine? Is, is it something that really contains the word of God and can it really change my life? If you want to know, then you have to read it and you have to follow it. Jesus said to his disciples, if you remain faithful to my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And this is, it seems out of order, because you almost want God to prove the Bible, then you'll follow. But God says, no, follow the Bible, and you'll see it's true. And the truth will set you free. It's like anything, you know, I, I see advertisements all the time. Buy this mattress, 30 days. If you don't like it, money back guarantee. But you got to take it home first and try it. Or try this skin product. If you don't like it, you have an allergic reaction, bring it back, full full money back, Guaranteed. And God is saying the same thing. Hey, you won't know. You won't be able to know how great I am until you taste and see that the Lord is good. So read the Bible, take it on, follow it, not just you know in your mind, in and out, and out the other, but apply it, right? Get into it. So I want to challenge you to take on a Bible reading plan. We're so lucky nowadays because we have our phones, but I guess it's also a distraction. But, um... There's an app called the Bible app, and it's free, and it has hundreds of Bible reading plans. And the great thing about these Bible reading plans is that they're sometimes as the short as three days, if you just want to, and there's some that are 30 days or a whole year or three years. So you can read the whole Bible, or there are topical ones about relationships or about You know, if you're new to faith um, or about leadership or addiction or forgiveness, um, My Atmosphere is Highest and other devotional books are on there. There's so many kinds. So download it. Go to the reading plan section. Choose one. And every day, it'll tell you what to read. And then you read it. And it doesn't take that long. You just have to commit to doing it consistently. And I do recommend that you read through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, before you reject it. Because you can't reject it if you haven't read it uh, and understood what it's trying to say. So as promised, here are some additional resources that you can turn to that I recommend for you to find out more information. Um, at the very least, some of these books are you know, quite technical. So at the very least, I recommend The Bible Project, which I love, which um, sometimes we show here at church, which are those short animated videos uh, based on a lot of research and very well done. Um, so at the very least, watch those videos that talk about how the Bible came together and how we can trust it and there's topics, etc. Let me leave you with a promise found in Isaiah. God says, My plans are not your plans, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my ways higher than your ways, and my plans than your plans. The rain and the snow come down from the sky, and don't return there without watering the earth, making it conceive and yield plants, and provide seed to the sower and food to the ear. So is my word that comes from my mouth, does not return to me empty. Instead, it does what I want and accomplishes what I intend. So the promise is that if you read the Bible and you follow it and you give it a chance, that that you will bear fruit, that God is going to do something amazing. And I pray that as a result, you too will experience the miracle of knowing um, and experiencing and having a relationship with God. I'd like to invite the praise team back up for to sing our closing hymn, "Wonderful Words of Life."